Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane. I am your host, uh, Chad Anderson. Uh, this is the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Uh, last week, we covered the conclusion to the Count Nefaria and his poorly dressed cronies storyline uh, in issue 23 to save a city. Uh, he trapped Washington, D.C. under a shield and was going to take everybody's oxygen away unless they gave him $100 million dollars. Uh, the day was only saved when Professor X used a bizarre walking suit <laughs> and a disguise to uh, help trick Count Nefaria. Uh, then at the very end of the issue, Jean Grey got a mysterious letter saying that she would have to, uh, and then announced she'd have to leave the school. Uh, so welcome to X-Men number 24. The title of this is uh, The Plague of the Locusts. Uh, it could also be subtitled Jean Grey finally gets her own storyline for the first time in comic history. Uh, this was made in uh, September of uh, 1966. Uh, we are so honored and thrilled to have uh, three very wonderful guests on today. My regular uh, co-host uh, Heather is here. Hi, Heather. Uh, we'll be joined by uh, Arturo shortly. And then we have the inestimable and incredibly talented uh, Leah Williams with us here today. Leah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're going to talk all about your work and everything, but before we get there, let's have you each introduce yourselves. Um, give us uh, your uh, pronouns and uh, answer this question. Uh, tell us an icky bug story from your life, which is clearly relevant to today's issue, which features the locust. Uh, Heather, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, my name is Heather and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And... I genuinely, I try to avoid icky bugs as much as possible, but I guess the closest I've got actually happened a few months ago um, because my roommate keeps bees and she brought the frames in to extract the honey but then left them on our kitchen table for a couple months. And there are a species of moths that make their homes and lay their eggs in the wooden frames of beehives. And so if you bring them in your house and then leave them there for a while, the moths go through their entire life cycle. And then you have an infestation of wax moths. And so that was a fun time a few months ago, especially because when it was first happening, I was the only one home. All my other roommates were out of town. <laughs> so I was walking around for a few days with a bunch of moths everywhere and trying to keep them out of my room. It was a good time. That sounds awful. <laughs> That's pretty icky. Uh, and then Leah, go ahead. Uh, hi, I'm Leah Williams, pronouns she, her. And I don't have an icky bug story so much as a lethal one, but it is immediately what sprang to mind when you brought up this uh, question prompt. And um, I grew up in Mississippi and I was five years old and I had a friend over at the house and, you know, we were just like feral Mississippi children running around outside. And, um, we found this like electric blue fat caterpillar. That was just the coolest thing we had ever seen. And I wanting to impress my friend picked it up. And that's how I learned that there are venomous caterpillars. Um, I let out this blood curdling scream and my mom came running and then like play date over because I had to go to the hospital <laughs> for picking up this caterpillar. I did not know that. And I consider myself a connoisseur of random animal facts. 
I lived in Mississippi for a little while when I was really little. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, my name is Chad. My pronouns are he, him. I, um, I have quite a few icky bug stories, actually. But the one that comes to mind most, I was in a really terrible college apartment when I was 21. And we had ants all over the place. And we couldn't figure out where they were coming from. And uh, one day we had the uh, the landlord or RA or whatever come over and he was hunting them down. We had an electrical socket on the wall like that you plug things into that wasn't working. And he unscrewed the socket and it was like Alfred Hitchcockian, like gajillions of ants just like like all over the wall. And we were like, ah, we uh, we got the bug spray out and started uh, literally just uh, murdering <laughs> Ants and we were sweeping them up and they were filling like dust pans full of <laughs> them in the God. trash. It was really traumatized. Quite, it was I would really be quite traumatized. <laughs> and then uh we have Arturo here. Okay. Uh hi, I'm Arturo. Um I, my pronouns are him and he or he him. Uh I am uh, part of the X's for podcast team. And uh Icky bug story. Okay, I'm not going to give you an icky one, but I'm going to give you like the most impactful and emotionally scarring one of my life, which was, okay, so in Miami, we have lightning bugs, but we always call them cucuyo, which is a Spanish word. And our lightning bugs are like this neon green and they're beautiful and they come out in the summer and they're amazing. And when I was like seven years old, one summer night, I caught like 20 of these in a little bug catching kit that I had and I was so excited and the next morning I woke up and they were like all dead and I was so traumatized I was so oh. upset I was like oh my god I killed them all so but they're my favorite bugs like they're the only bugs that I, I mess with I have a I have a 10 year old son who wants to be a conservationist and he is very pro-life of everything and when he was reading this locust issue with me the callous murder of insects. He was not pleased. <laughs> so, it is pretty cold-blooded. Like, <laughs> just no hesitation. So we'll jump in. Uh, so I'm going to get started today with an interview uh, with Leah. But uh, really quickly before we start, uh, Heather and Arturo, uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your uh, X-Men connections, if you will. And then uh, and then we'll jump in. Heather, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I mean... I've been on here a lot, so I feel like if people have been listening, they know me. Um, I do not have a lot of excellent connections. I am kind of a newbie. I learn something new every episode <laughs> about the X-Men. Um, even though I grew up with a dad who was very big into comics, I thought, yeah, I know. I know what I'm doing. Like, I'm fairly well-versed in comics and then I came on here and I was like oh no I'm not okay <laughs> but it's been fun <laughs> we're having so much fun and then Arturo go ahead uh so yeah I'm Arturo um I've been into comics since I was since I was a kid uh and like so many of us different points in my life kind of left but I always came back like a like a boomerang and uh specifically during the pandemic not just reading comic books but connecting with other people and talking about it became such a such a great escape that uh that it just kind of became part of my my life my routine so 
Uh, so for me, it's kind of the same answer. I grew up in kind of some shitty circumstances. The X-Men for so many ways uh, was an escape for me from the reality of all that. Uh, as a as an adult, I worked on the X-Men and Marvel handbooks for a long time. Uh, now I'm co-hosting a podcast, which is delightful. Uh, Leah, do you want to give us your origin story with the X-Men? Yeah, absolutely. So having grown up in Mississippi, I didn't have access to comics. Um, I did, however, get really into X-Men Evolution, the cartoon. Huge crush on goth rogue. Um, just perfect. And then I didn't get into comics until I was in college, actually, because I started rooming with this girl who had a lot of comics. And, you know, my ignorant ass, I was like, I thought comics were for boys. Mm -hmm. And this girl just gets up, walks out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> and she pulls a book off her shelf and then she comes back to my desk and slaps down Watchmen on my desk. Mm. And that was like her single strongest argument for why I was full of shit. And, you know, comics aren't just like a boy thing and are, are actually full of nuance and an amazing diversity of stories. And I have just never looked back since. I started working at a comic book shop um, like right after that and then started writing them. I love that so much. So uh, we're going to spend a few minutes with Leah and Heather and Arturo at any point, feel free to interject with questions or comments. Uh, but uh, Leah, I uh, when I initially sent you the, the invitation to be on this podcast and you responded, I literally sat up in bed and was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my husband didn't wake up, luckily. Uh, but uh, Leah Williams, you guys, has been uh, a writer and a lot of things in a lot of areas, uh, really impressive history. But just in recent years at Marvel, she's uh, she's done a lot of really incredible work. Uh, everything from Totally Awesome Hulk to Gwenpool to Domino. There's this really magical issue of What If featuring magic. Uh, there's a, uh, an incredibly uh, nuanced and thought-provoking uh, run called Age of X-Men Extremists, um, X-Men Black Emma Frost, uh, uh, and most recently, the incredible series uh, uh, of X-Factor, which has just resonated uh, so much with so many of, uh, of our listeners, I know. We have a, a, a premise here at Gray Malkin Lee, if you're unaware uh, the the X-Men formed their home away from society. Uh, when people rejected them, they made their own home on Gray Malkin Lane. So that's kind of why we chose that name for this podcast, because queer people so frequently have to find their own families in their own spaces. And exactly. the X-Men so widely speaks to queer audiences. Uh, oh, you also did a, a, the, your Giant Man series, which I love too. We, we could talk oh, about all of these. Uh, and, oh, an amazing Mary Jane. I, I almost forgot. Uh, so uh, right now, Leah is currently putting out the series, uh, The Trial of Magneto, which uh, has people captivated and curious. Uh, Leah, it is such an esteemed honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Oh, of course. Of course. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let's begin with uh, your your first kind of foray into the X-Men specifically. Can you tell us kind of where that started? It started when I was working in the comic book shop. Um, and I knew that X-Men continuity was like comics continuity on hard mode, like expert level, you know, because X-Men continuity is famously convoluted and confusing. So I was really intimidated by that. But I still, you know, it felt like 
a challenge to me, like, okay, I, I want to know this because I'm not going to let this confusing continuity get the best of me. So I kind of came at it sideways and I started reading a lot of the peripheral titles like um, X-Force, X-Factor and Excalibur. And um, from there, I really connected with certain characters. And then I would go and follow that character's uh, kind of emotional and, and narrative journey throughout different comics. It's uh, it's it's a huge, uh, uh, giant pile of history, really, truly. And in today's day and age, I think uh, I, I sound old when I say this, but it's easy to to jump online and find a podcast or a Wikipedia article where you could look things up. But for a lot of us, oh, totally, we to, yeah, we, we didn't have that. Yeah. Back issues. We had to <laughs> spend our money looking for issues and finding the history. There was oh. no Marvel Unlimited. There was no like, you know, pirate. Uh, pirated comic sites or anything like that. It was all uh, physical issues. Yeah, I mean that's that's totally when I came up, and it was like it was like putting together a puzzle, and you just had like disparate pieces. Like there's there are comics where like I jumped on and I started buying monthly, but then the stuff before, well, like I remember, I, I felt like a like a private eye trying to figure out the Outback era. Because it was like there was no collection mm -hmm. of it. It was just this crazy jumbled mess. And it made such an impression on me. I mean, I was I was like primed for, and this is, you know, a timely little thing to mention, but like the the 90s X-Men cartoon, which, you know, huge news yesterday is uh is coming back, X-Men 97. But I was I was like right at that sweet spot where I knew enough about X-Men. Like I was, I was enough of a of an avid reader. Uh, on a monthly basis that when the cartoon came out, it felt like, oh, wow, they're not just tackling like big old stories. They're they're also tackling like almost like new stuff. Like you were seeing characters that were just introduced two years ago on page. Now they're in the in the, you know, on your TV screen. So it was just this like crazy synergy. Like the 90s gets a lot of a lot of a lot of flack, but it was good times. But yeah, we didn't have anything online. That just wasn't even a thing. When I was 16, I also was worked in a comic shop for a couple of years. And I, I remember going to the comic shop owner and being like, okay, there's this guy Warlock and then this guy Doug Ramsey. Like, what, what's their deal? And he goes, oh, Chad, <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have all day. <laughs> uh, Leah, your first professional work at Marvel with the X-Men, was it the What If Magic special? It wasn't it was actually a I want to say like a four or five page short story in um Secret Empire and it was with Emma Frost and uh Domino so the first line of uh X-Men dialogue that I ever wrote is um Emma Frost thinking being a hot girl is weird <laughs> and I stand by that. Uh, Heather, any comments? <laughs> I mean, I think I might love you a little bit, Leah. <laughs> um, delving into uh, your "What If Magic" special specifically, so I have I have three kind of sets of questions I want to ask. Um, so, Magic is a character in the comics who, in the real world of the X Men. Uh, she's Colossus's little sister. At a very young age, she gets kidnapped by a demon named Belasco and raised in this horrible dimension of demons, uh, and then comes back as an older teen into the series. 
And she's been part of the comics for a very long time. Leah, you did this beautiful uh, kind of what if parallel reality. Uh, what if uh, magic came back and her her path took kind of a different turn? She ends up in kind of Doctor Strange's uh, tutelage. And uh, uh, there's some really, really beautiful kind of feminist driven themes uh, that come forward out of that. What was it like to write that issue? Uh, what appealed to you about magic? Um, what was the response? So... What if magic, basically the question that uh, what if magic posits specifically is what if magic became Sorcerer Supreme? So um, that was the way that my editor, Annalise Bisa, approached me about it because this was her idea. And um, she reached out to me and asked, would you be interested in writing this? And like my jaw dropped. I was just like, how has no one written this before? How has this story not been told? Oh my God, of course I want to write this. And, you know, when I was thinking about it and coming up with my ideas, I just took a logical path. Like, what circumstances are the most intuitive and and make the most sense authentically in how this character would wind up as Sorcerer Supreme? So that kind of led me to this point of thinking, all right, well, let's backtrack a bit and think about when she comes back from limbo. Think about how traumatized she is, how her family doesn't recognize her how she's older and you know her family didn't even know that she was missing um because time moves differently between 616 and limbo so like she comes back and she's like mom dad i you know have been missing for so long and they're like our little girl is still in the backyard who the hell are you get off our property so it becomes this kind of traumatized teenage runaway situation and she's full of this magic she's just you know, combustible with all of her anger and rage and trauma and magic coursing through her. So she's just kind of wreaking havoc along the East Coast as she wanders. And that's how uh, she encounters Doctor Strange, because this is a magical anomaly that he's been tracking for a while um, due to like the destruction left behind as uh, it exits places. And it turns out to be Ileana. And um my thinking was also in what allowed her escape from limbo would be uh, her mutant powers manifesting because her mutant ability is not the magic, it's teleportation. So imagine you're this uh, tortured child living in um, limbo, which is you know analogous to hell, and you suddenly develop the ability to teleport. <laughs> of course, you're getting out of there. Um, and it, it all just kind of came together really organically once, once I figured out that angle of how I wanted to tell the story and the kind of more tender approach towards her state of mind and, and the PTSD, um, recovering from, uh, years and years of child abuse and, you know, other really dark circumstances. Um, it felt special the entire time that I was working on it. And, you know, I'm sure you guys are all creatives and sometimes, you know, the feeling when you're working on a particular project and it just clicks really perfectly and you can feel while you're working on it. Okay. This one's different. This one's special. That's what, what if magic was like. And, the entire creative team was perfectly in sync with each other. My editor, 
Philippe Andrade, the artist, Chris O'Halloran, colors, like we were just all totally on the same page with this project and knew exactly the story that we were telling. And um, it, and then we were tireless about it. Every single detail, uh, every single line of dialogue, every single panel, nothing was overlooked and everything was examined for the best possible meaning and intent. Um, and I'm, I'm still really, really pleased with the way that it came out. Reading that book at the time, uh, I remember seeing like, okay, women or female writer, which is still pretty rare at that time in a lot of ways. Uh, and there's, there's a moment where Dr. Strange is trying so hard to earn Ileana's trust. And she's like, why would I trust you? Like you're a man trying to lock me in this room, just like this guy did all these years. Uh, there's something, uh, I mean, straight people can write queer people, but there's something about queer people writing queer people, right? Men can write women, but there's something about women writing women. Uh, and the the impact of trauma and recovery that showed up in that issue, I was so impressed at the time and still am. Uh, Arturo, did you read that issue? I did, I did. And uh, I, I mean, Leah, just in an incredible piece, that was the second comic by you that I read. The first was X-Men Black with Emma Frost, which... Just to yeah, side note real quick, thank you for like writing the ship. Like Emma had been, it was in such a bad way at that point and you just grabbed her and and did the, did some, did like the best thing you could with her. And it, I think kind of set her back on the, on the right trajectory. So thank you. Thank you. That of... was my goal. Yeah. I am an obsessive Emma Frost fan and I wanted to, put her on a trajectory back towards like, you know, the heroic path that she had been on for so long. Um, but there was all this stuff like first uh, IVX and then Terrigen Mists and, and that kind of thing where she kept getting caught in, in these terrible circumstances. And I was like, okay, I want to re-empower my best bitch here. What, what can we do with this? <laughs> so on that, brilliant. on that theme of, uh, of, trauma uh, and characters. We recently on Grey Malkin did a very long episode that we called The Trial of Wanda Maximoff. We uh, discussed at length the Scarlet Witch's character and we discussed a lot of the, the crimes she committed uh, and how complicit she was in them. Uh, and I left that that uh, with a, a really deep love for that character that I didn't have before, although I've always been fond of her. So Leah, as you're writing the series Trial of Magneto, and I fully recognize you can't give us any spoilers You've taken uh, this character who has had so much of her history wrapped up in being a wife and a mother and a daughter and a sister uh, who has been through these very unspeakable traumas and has been treated a particular way because she is a female character with a lot of power. Uh, and you seem to, much like you did with Magic and Emma Frost, seem to be trying to put her back on a particular path. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tell me, tell me your take on the Scarlet Witch. Uh, and I know we can't have spoilers, of course, but I, would I know, but I, this is totally within reason of what we can talk about, because I feel like you're picking up on what's already visible in my intentions. And yeah. also you're connecting it to the work I usually do with characters um, at Marvel. And the reason is I love doing this kind of um, character work and rehabilitation and fixing. I love fixing characters, especially the female characters who have been broken by a lot of destructive storytelling. And um, I like putting them back on a path of 
uh, being empowered and giving them agency and that kind of thing. So I, you know, like we were just talking about, I wanted to do that with Emma Frost, wanted to do that with Magic, uh, wanted to do that with Polaris and X Factor. <laughs> And um, wanted to do that with Blob and Betsy and Northstar and Jubilee and Extremists. And I want to do that with Wanda in Trial of Magneto. It's really, really important to me that Trial of Magneto uh, serves as an empathy engine for uh, both Magneto and Polaris and Wanda especially. No one more so than Wanda. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts about Wanda as a character? I love her. I think that she is a really complicated person um, with, oh, sorry, Alexa's yelling at me right now. She's reminding <laughs> me. So speaking of that roommate who got me into comics, um, Alexa is reminding me that her birthday is tomorrow. We're still really <laughs> close friends. <laughs> um, so what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So Wanda is like, there's something very old world about Wanda's sensibilities, but also something just in whimsical. Like there, she has an unyielding streak of whimsy to her as well. And a sense of playfulness that we don't always get to see because of, you know, the story circumstances where her, um, you know, mental facilities are being weaponized against her and turned into this kind of grenade as a as a plot device and um she's been gaslit she's been lied to she's been manipulated for years and years and years and by people she trusted and i i think that you know we're at a really good time right now in the overall uh, landscape of the current X line and storytelling where we can rehabilitate House of M, where we can bring these characters back together and give them some agency and some healing and catharsis so that uh, it serves as something additive, a way to move forward instead of just kind of spinning ruts in the same uh well-worn track of pitting Wanda against mutants and vice versa. The uh, the concept of this is fascinating and I can't wait to see where uh, where this leads. Arturo, what are some of your thoughts on this? Well, um, just even before we jump into Wanda, but this ties back to, you know, the question about magic. Leah, I think this is like one of the, the coolest things about your writing is you move characters forward and show us kind of like the best that they can be but you don't shy away from the messy bits and and the continuity and and just kind of the way they've been you know mistreated i mean i was i was gonna jump in when you were talking and be like cough cough lorna dane because <laughs> i mean that to me like it, and not just her but honestly that whole team was like just your work you get into these heavy topics these real topics this of, of trauma of experiences of uh of being manipulated and 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 not being your best or not being in control of things and and you deal with it as much as you can because there's no like you know erasing that or fixing that but you always kind of push them forward into a new direction so like i'm super excited with what's happening uh over in the trial of magneto because Wanda's a character that I've always thought was was cool. She was great, but like she didn't sit with us during lunch, you know? Like she was never on any like I was reading 
anything x-men x-factor x-force like you name it like anything even tangentially related to mutants and she just wasn't really around too much you know and so, if she was it was bad news <laughs> yes yeah, and if she was it was terrible news it was uh yeah so it's just it's like hats off to you well thank you thank you it's really by far my my favorite way to tell these stories authenticity is really really important to me and um i've called myself a continuity zealot in the past but i think that a better way of phrasing it would be to say i'm a continuity gremlin because every time i find something every time i go dumpster diving in marvel continuity and i find something that i can use to my advantage in the current comics you know like it's like a monkey's paw curling like okay so Dokken has this pheromone ability that you know you guys let stagnate as something kind of creepy and manipulative for so many years so I'm gonna fix that and make it so that he cannot create what is not there he can only adjust people's pheromones like a dial meaning he really did sleep with Johnny Storm <laughs> I Can love it. that so much. <laughs> um, uh, Heather, did you have any quest questions about the Scarlet Witch before we move forward? No, I just love this whole thing because that's actually kind of what I do with fairy tales. Is because I rewrite a lot of fairy tales in my own time, and eventually we'll get them published. We'll see. But <laughs> I go in and I'm like, "Hey." which character has been done dirty by the story and how can we fix it? And so I just love everything I'm hearing on this. Uh, uh, Leah, we could talk for hours about X Factor and I know you've done a lot of public interviews around that already. So I don't have a lot of questions there, but I just wanted to say what a huge, incredibly huge fan I am. Um, your selection of uh, characters like the Morrigan, uh, the, the way you very lovingly treated these characters, the way you made their powers feel real and their psychology, uh, so beautiful. And uh, I know so many of us were devastated to hear it was canceled. Um, uh, thank you for that incredible work. Speaking for, uh, for queer people from MySpace, we, uh, we, we really uh, were impacted strongly to see uh, a company of that caliber invest in a team of mostly queer people written by a woman uh, i just or by a woman i just never thought that's something i would uh, i would witness in my life so that was a wonderful wonderful thing thank you thank you it was definitely one of the greatest joys of my life to work on that book um as a queer writer writing a team that is so queer and like messy and you know figuring themselves out at the same time they're figuring out their team dynamic and that kind of thing it was an incredible joy and exhilarating and i was also devastated when x factor was canceled so it was uh david the artist and my one of my besties now um and the reason was because i uh had originally pitched what's happening in Trial of Magneto as my third arc of X Factor. So the pitch ended up being so popular <laughs> that they were like, okay, well, let's focus on this then because we really love this and um, we want to shine a spotlight on the work you're doing here to rehabilitate House of M and Wanda and all these kinds of characters. So uh, 
that's that's what ended up happening, and that's why uh, I'm working on Trial of Magneto now. Are there any talk about talk about monkeys paw? I mean, right? I, like on <laughs> like I'm still holding a virtual you know candlelight vigil every week for X Factor to come back. Um, I was lucky enough over on X's for podcast to interview David earlier this year, and. I'm pretty sure it was earlier. I mean, time is like a flat circle. It was either earlier this year or later last year. Uh, And it was definitely well before there was any announcement of, of any, any cancellation. It felt like the two of you were just getting started. Like, I can't thank you enough for, for that book. And, and it, the amount of love that it was so clear that you were both pouring into it. Uh, he was, you know, he was talking to us and, and told us about, you know, the mood boards and the, and the playlists oh, yeah. we, and just like this full immersive dive into these We characters. worked together so closely and we were just like thick as thieves because we loved the book so much and we loved our cast. Like those were our babies. We were so invested in, you know, putting them on like a really additive story path and giving them like fully fleshing out eye boy and giving him a personality that people will find memorable and uh, you know, new aspects to his powers, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that it really shows the moment David and I started collaborating like that uh, because it was for issue seven. And that's when stuff really started popping off in, in the book and our storytelling got a little more, um, experimental and exciting and that kind of thing. It's because David and I made a Slack where we were collaborating really closely on this stuff, um, every single aspect of it and having a blast. We also felt like we were just getting started. And um, yeah, we have like Spotify playlists and Pinterest boards and all these different channels in the Slack, ones for um, character meta because we would have these super long discussions about every single character and uh, a channel just for clothing ref. (laughs) It was, it was amazing. Yeah. And that's still like our point of contact with each other. We kicked everyone else out of the Slack because like we had our editors in there, but then once it was canceled, we were like, okay, no, this is our space now (laughs) and kicked everyone else out. And that's how we uh, keep in touch. We still just, you know, hang out in the Slack. Well, keep it open because, like, I know I'm not alone here in praying that there will be a season two for for specifically for the two of you. Because, like, one thing I hate about you know modern publishing and 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 comics is finding that you know hundred issue run is they're they're like fewer and far between nowadays. Like, and and that's what I felt like you two were doing. I was like, this is going to be like the next big x factor you know chapter that is going to go you know 92 issues or whatever and uh and i'm i'm still holding on to hope hey we just got the x-men cartoon back so anything's (laughs) possible uh my third question here uh is primarily for heather uh so heather i'll let you respond but uh leah what's your quick take on charles xavier i hate him (laughs) (laughs) I think he's the real villain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Heather? <laughs> do we want my signature response? Of course we do. Charles is a dick. 
<laughs> we uh, we've had lots of uh, conversations about problematic uh, issues with Charles Xavier in the '60s. Uh, so thank you. That was uh, that was lovely. Uh, okay, we are going to jump in. I feel like I could ask you a thousand thousand questions, but uh, uh, thank you, thank you again for the incredible work you're doing. I came in as a fan, but like uh, as we talk here, I'm like. Not that I didn't have respect before, but I'm developing some serious respect for the work you're doing. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, so happy to have you here. Um, we are here today to review uh, X-Men number 24. Uh, as we look at the cover, uh, a couple of things uh, initially to notice. On most of the uh, 60s issues so far, we have had Angel flying across the top of the logo. And starting here, we have Professor X with lightning bolts coming out of his head, and he stays there for a long time on top now. Uh, uh, so as not we look at that, say again. I said not a fan. <laughs> you preferred Angel there. Uh, as we look at this kind of action shot, it's the plague of the locust. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on this cover. Uh, I thought that it was super striking and also a little bit... Um, you know, I'm I'm used to really like cluttered covers from the earlier stuff, and this one is a bit more like brutalist architecture. Like, there's really strong lines and and bold colors. The comment the covers get a little less busy uh, in the for the next while. It's more like big action shots. I yeah. think the locust looks really menacing, which is not what he is in the <laughs> issue. <laughs> he looks really scary here. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Heather and Arturo, what were your thoughts? Well, even though this is you know when Jean finally gets storyline, she still is standing on this cover like she doesn't know what's happening. But also what I saw very, very first, other than what you were saying about the locust being menacing when he's not, is Bobby Drake. <laughs> and how he uh, is, a, a case of the vapors. Yes. <laughs> too much. How he is laying on the ground like he can't bear to go on. <laughs> he's so sad. Uh, as we flip over to page one, we still see the X-Men being called the most unusual fighting team of all time. Um, the credits here, I'm going to read out loud. Editing by Stan Busy B. Lee. Script by Roy Bookworm Thomas. Art by uh, Werner Worker Ant Roth. Inking by Dick Doodlebug Ayers. And uh, lettering by Sam Pussycat Rosen. Uh, I've been trying to teach people just a little bit about the, the men in the bullpen back then. So I'm um, uh, talking about Sam Rosen specifically for just a second. Sam Rosen and Artie Simic uh, were two of the original letterers for Marvel. Uh, they worked uh, for several different other companies as well, Archie Comics, DC, different things. Uh, Sam Rosen died in 1992, but his last published work was in 1972. He had a some sort of major nervous breakdown and never worked in comics again. And back then they would hand draw the uh, speech bubbles on the art and fill them in. They would also hand draw the sound effects, uh, all these flubes and fraps and splooshes that we get, uh, they would put on. Uh, uh, Sam had a brother, Joe Rosen, who worked in the original comics quite a bit as well. And the letterers would also design the logos, not only for the titles, but for the books themselves back throughout the 60s. Uh, so there's a little fun facts about Sam Rosen. Uh, uh, any comments on that before we continue? Why does he get to be pussycat when everyone else are bugs? <laughs> I think the I think the premise often is the letterers would make fun of themselves uh, uh, back then. So almost every issue you see the letterer somehow uh, somehow making fun of themselves a little bit. It's kind of a running gag in the '60s books. 
which I think is adorable. <laughs> um, okay, so as we jump in, we get to have uh, Jean Grey finally get a little bit of attention. She's not a background or supporting character kind of for the first time. Uh, Leah, what are some of your thoughts on Jean Grey as a character? Are you a fan? I am a fan, yeah. I um, think of her... So she falls into the same kind of mental category for me as Polaris or Scarlet Witch or, you know, any other number of female characters that are um, kind of, I, I don't want to say created to be hot or like created to be the girl, but um, created for not necessarily their agency and their powers, <laughs> I think is is a fair enough assessment. They're kind of accessories. Um, and then fleshed out later, usually by having some kind of heel turn. And I have utmost respect for these women now because they're like patchwork quilts of all of these kind of different characteristics they've taken on over time. Emma Frost, another great example of this. Um, and Jean Grey is one of the most um, prolific of these, I would say. She seems to always be either uh, the supporting character, someone to be lusted after, or someone to be rescued so frequently in these early books. Uh, we oh, have yeah. conversations. Arturo, are you a Jean Grey fan? I am. Um, I love Jean Grey. Uh, I, I I really enjoyed when Jean Grey was actually gone. I thought like she went out like a champ. Like that was I, I really enjoyed that that story. Um, you know, coming out of out of Morrison's run. Um looking back though and and reading this like you know full disclosure like i haven't read these back issues like i i i read you know this is this is kind of like new material for me right um and i was excited that we were going to be talking about a, a character i've never met the locust so like that that there was like some novelty with that uh but then right off the bat just seeing jean gray when she was really limited to you know just being the girl like that's that's kind of the purpose she serves on this team and at, at this point it makes me so much more appreciate what what she becomes and and the way that claremont you know plucked her and made her this this pivotal character when you know back then she was just kind of like she was on the page which is great but just not you know not a lot of agency not a lot of uh, not a lot of power, just just kind of like part of the team. Uh, but I mean, I guess back then, you know, just like that—that that was better than nothing, you know. I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Heather, on a splash page, out of after twenty-four issues, we finally get to see Jean Grey front and center. What was your uh, your thoughts on seeing her on page one as the most prominent figure? I mean, it was pretty cool, other than the fact that you know everyone's still. Well, Warren and Scott are still like, oh, but I love her. <laughs> and also, she still has her poodle ears cowl. Ugh. But in general, she's not standing, like, she's definitely has, like, the classic feminine pose with her knee popped a little bit and stuff like that. But she's not overtly damsel in distress, and which I appreciated a little bit. 
So often in early Marvel comics, uh, the characters would actually advance. Spider-Man graduated high school. Reed and Sue got married. Uh, the X-Men graduated way back in like X-Men number seven. Uh, so we get in a speech bubble down at the bottom, it mentioning that Jean Grey's parents have withdrawn her from this school that she's already graduated from and just been hanging out at. And she's been going off to uh, Metro College, which has already been introduced in a number of issues of the Human Torch series as uh, Strange Tales and uh, Fantastic Four. Uh, the Human Torch and uh, Wyatt Wingfoot, who's a longtime favorite of mine, uh, attend there. Uh, Jean is uh, lifting some books off the shelf, uh, all about telekinetic research. My first question is, who is writing books about telekinesis back then? <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Charles, it's his own <laughs> fan fiction. <laughs> he just wrote it himself. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we uh, we get a Jean story. So as we uh, as we move to the next page, uh, let's just note that Professor X is like a billionaire. He's got helicopters and he designs his own robots. But he and all of the boys have pitched in to get Jean a going away <laughs> gift, and it is what a corsage. A corsage. <laughs> like they're going to prom. <laughs> And Jean says she will treasure it always. Uh, it's not even a particularly nice. I was corsage. just going to say that. It's not even a pretty corsage. What are those? Like chrysanthemums? Orange chrysanthemums? <laughs> like it's, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting like some mild Krakoan vibes that there, there's some <laughs> significance behind these flowers. If they were Krakoan flowers, they would be like tropical and look like vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my. Yeah. Uh, if this is like a real fuck you gift to goodbye, like thanks for almost dying a bunch of times. Now that you're leaving us, here's a flower. Goodbye. Uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a really shitty way to, to part with somebody, but she seems very honored somehow. Uh, I just looked up the symbolism, like the flower symbolism of what it means to give someone uh, chrysanthemums. And apparently it means um, friendship and well-wishing. Hmm. Okay. Except isn't orange in the language of flowers like kind of a fuck you? I mean, for me, it would be. <laughs> for me, I if someone gave me, you know, like a corsage of orange mums, I would be like, are you mad at me? What did I do? Well, we know at least three out of the five are... <laughs> crazily attracted to her <laughs> and probably mad she's not picking any of them four out of the five most, the... I, I was gonna say wait <laughs> true 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 cyclops angel beast and professor x uh have all crushed on gene iceman yeah. is the only one <laughs> good for him See, i felt like i feel like beast i mean again like i'm not familiar with what was going on at this point but yeah they're definitely clobbering the you know the angel cyclops gene kind of love triangle um and obviously we all know xavier's a scumbag but yeah um so uh we see gene kind of run from the room in tears she's sad she comes back changed and they are ready to drive her off to school now there's a, a key moment here where angel's thinking oh i was missing my chance with her cyclops is still pining after her but afraid they literally have never even talked about having feelings it's all thought bubbles uh but cyclops says here, Jean, let me take your suitcase. And she thinks that tone in his voice, almost as if he dot, dot, dot. Like he must've put some significant 
affection <laughs> behind offering to carry her suitcase. Like, was his voice dripping with Harlequin romance? Jean, let me take your suitcase. And then she knew. <laughs> do you uh, do you like these uh, these uh, back and forths between uh, Scott and Jean in the early books, Leah? I do just because they're so novel to me uh, compared to like the way these kinds of feelings are communicated now um, in the comics, looking at all of these thought bubbles and having access to like three different characters, internal monologues on the page is, is one of those things where I'm like, Oh, we would never get away with that now. <laughs> like it, it would be, um, you know, it, something contemporary writers would use as like a gag on the page or something, but this is no longer the convention for um, this, this kind of, you know, communicating of feelings between characters. And I think that it's actually kind of adorable, especially because this is a motif. This is like something that carries along, not just through this issue, but so, so many issues, especially the longing, the unspoken longing between uh, Scott and Jean. And it is so, like kind of heartwarming to see its genesis here, knowing, of course, you know, how it all turns out between them. Um, I, I think it's so cute. Now, Roy Thomas is slowly pairing everyone off. Uh, he take, took over from Stan, Stanley a while back. Uh, Bobby's got Zelda. Beast has got Vera. Uh, Angel's about to get Candy Southern. Uh, and Gene in this issue meets Mr. Ted Roberts, who we're not going to talk a lot about today because he appears in the next several issues. But uh, Heather, let me get your response. As they go off to college, Gene meets this kind of good looking jock guy who flirts with her a little bit. What did you think of this interaction? I was not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Big surprise. Um, when he like, great, like reach out, try to help someone new. Sure. But then he's like, of course, in exchange, you have to split a big orange drink with me. And it's like, bruh, <laughs> you just met like the exchange bodily saliva is like that is like a third date thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, as we as we will always learn anytime they introduce anyone, basically. But uh, Ted Roberts will learn in a few issues has a brother who will turn out to be a supervillain uh, because, you know, that's the way comics work. Uh, and as Gene is getting uh, walked away arm in arm with Ted, we get our first images of the locust experimenting on uh, grasshoppers in the weeds. Uh, Arturo, what did you think of the locust? What were your initial thoughts? Um, they're adorable. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's just cute that this guy's whole plan is just like these giant grasshoppers. It's... Uh, I, I, it's funny because I've recently been re-watching um, Harvey Birdman, Attorney at Law. And uh, I don't know if you guys have seen, but like that that kind of like old aesthetic. And then that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of Venture Brothers is what I've been watching. that I just started. Uh, and this just felt, you know, I, I, was, I was messaging Chad earlier, like the monarch from Venture Brothers. Like the, he's such a corny villain like <laughs> and, and and you just get that vibe right off the bat it was like you know this was this was simpler times like gene and scott are trapped in this like virgin chastity ring death spiral <laughs> and uh we're spicing that up now maybe uh and then we have this this just absurd villain, every villain you know? is queer coded and horny as hell <laughs> Yes. Oh, also, let's give him his proper name is Dr. Augustus Hopper. Did everybody get the joke? 
Yes. His name is Gus Hopper. <laughs> and he's obsessed with grasshoppers. He's Gus Hopper. But to make it, you know, it's Dr. Augustus Hopper. Leah, what's your assessment of the Locust's uh, character and motivation? I think he is super fun. Um, I had totally forgotten all about this until I was looking at this issue for this uh, episode. Um, and uh, you you warned me in your email about this. Like, he's fun. And once I was getting into it, I was like, yes, he is. He's ridiculous. He's so theatrical and over the top. And, you know, when we first see him with uh, his plan, he uses the word, he uses the word baddie, which first of all was like dousing me with cold water, you know, because obviously it has a very different connotation <laughs> nowadays. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're reversing some gender roles when we meet him because he's like dispensing eggs, his babies. <laughs> out into this field and I was like okay I'm on board he seems fun <laughs> he is obsessed he he dresses like them he thinks about them like these bugs are his whole life uh Heather do you have page four in front of you um yes so in the first panel I'm gonna I'm gonna read the boy will you read the girl uh sure. we have giant giant ass like captions where the the grasshoppers are eating corn and wheat outside and it's so loud that it literally makes the sound effect crunch 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 and the man says he's waking up out of bed very abruptly his wife's next to him in in rollers uh or curlers he says listen do you hear the chomping sound cora hmm? i thought it was you having an early breakfast it's probably <laughs> nothing go back to sleep what does this man eat for breakfast <laughs> Like I feel like I feel like the writer, like his wife, always complains <laughs> about him chewing too loud, and he kind of like put it into the comic. I think he gets like a big mouthful of grape nuts and just chews it right in her ear, just <laughs> uh, or corn nuts. Corn nuts make really yeah. crunchy sounds. Uh, this is easily my favorite panel in the whole book. I'll just be real honest. That uh, <laughs> that interaction is ridiculous with the uh, the sound effects. Uh, okay, we're going to take a deep dive for Locust really quickly. This is the only time he will appear in the X-Men comics, except one other. Uh, the Locust has only appeared four times ever. Uh, many years from now, he will show up in an issue of The Incredible Hulk, uh, in which we hear a story about his only daughter is getting married to a farmer, and he's pissed. So he uh, like grows giant bugs to destroy this farmer and then gets just smashed by the Hulk. Stupid, crazy, incredible story. Then in X-Factor X 52, he recognizes the original X-Men operating as X-Factor and decides to attack them. He's trying to destroy humanity with bugs and they defeat him again. Uh, the final time he appears, there's a time when the Defenders were going by a brief series. They were called The Order. Uh, in The Order number four, uh, he is trying to blackmail the world, threatening ecological disaster, and he just gets squashed uh, once again. Uh, so, Leah, I think it's up to you to bring the locust back. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. Seems like a good time for it. Kirkoans have their own, you know, place now, their own agriculture. He, you can handle a, a group of flying grasshoppers storming Krakoa. <laughs> 
Oh God, that can, sounds can so stupid. Can we just acknowledge how brilliant it is that one X Factor was posing as the Exterminators, which was just like a horrible, stupid, bad idea <laughs> of all the villains to like catch it and be like, "Hey, wait a minute, these are the X Men." It was the Locust, you I, guys. Like, I think he attacked them after the Exterminators nonsense was done. I think it was later. It was a little later in the run, but you know, yeah, it's it's a really fun story. Go back and read X Factor Fifty Two. It's kind of amazing. Uh, so as we move forward, we see uh, the police have been called because this farmland has been destroyed uh, and they uh, <laughs> they are baffled. They don't know what to do. Of course, uh, we flash back to the X-Men. Uh, Professor X has gotten reports over radios of giant locusts. And so they pile into one of his thousand fucking helicopters that he keeps uh, in bulk that he bought at Costco, we think, uh, in his garage. And the X-Men fly out and uh, and discover giant grasshoppers eating uh, eating grass with the locusts nearby. Uh, who wants to talk about this uh, <laughs> ridiculous fight sequence on pages six and seven? I want to talk about something on page five first, though, Please. which is that I um, love how Charles immediately goes to like, oh, giant grasshoppers and locusts must be a mutie thing. Like, he just... <laughs> It, it it doesn't say through, you know, whatever radio call came through that it uh, was the fault of mutants or this is mutant activity or anything like that. Like a homeboy just heard huge insects and was like, yes, mutations, this is our thing. And um, I just think it shows what like a narcissist he is. Some some villains come across the X Men's path, or if it's mutant related. But this is a villain that anyone could have fought. It could have right. it could have been featured in any series. Exactly. <laughs> From Werewolf by Night to uh, to the Fantastic Four, it could be uh, it could be anywhere. Um, so okay, so this crazy fight sequence on pages uh, six and seven. Let's hear some of your favorite moments, and there's a lot of great ones here. First of all, the X-Men are not worried about murdering bugs. They are all about like, let's smash them, let's impale them with ice spears, let's squash them, zap them, uh, whatever we gotta do, just step on them and get them out of here. The impaling with ice spears was kind of inspired. Like, it, you know, this is early days for for Bobby and uh, it was, that was, that for me was a moment because I was like, damn, that, that was cold. He just took that bug out. We also have Beast riding on the back of one. Yes, we do. And he says, and this may be my favorite line in the comic. He says, restrain yourself, invertebrates. I'm supposed to be apprehending you. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out how provocative and kind of sexy it is that Beast's bare feet are running around all over the place back then. Because if you look at like all of the characters, like no skin is showing like a little you know bit of the mouth but like they're covered head to toe in cloth and uh these feet are sexier than they need to be <laughs> there's actually a panel on page seven where there's like a cloud of um pesticide uh gas enveloping them and the only feet. thing showing <laughs> yeah are our beast's feet sticking out of the cloud and they're like angel flap your wings you gotta clear the air god damn it we've been drowning in insecticide uh heather did you have any favorite moments here i mean there were just so many <laughs> i do think that the panel right after 
they spear the bug with the ice spear is like the most detailed Bobby's face has ever been as Iceman. And it kind of weirds me out. But <laughs> it also, like, the grasshopper or the locust tries to eat him. And it's like, honestly, he probably could. He could probably get through that ice because their jaws are intense. But he might not have enjoyed it, but he could have done it. <laughs> they're, they're growing as they eat, too. Um, we get, uh, we get Angel saying, when are the X-Men going to stop being the hard luck Harry's of Herodom, which just sounds like <laughs> some terrible show from the sixties that I kind of want to watch now. Yes. Uh, it makes me happy. Uh, we also see reference to the national guard. This is kind of the second time in a row where we see kind of the military coming in or storming in to try to help clean things up, which is very realistic, obviously for like real world scenarios, but, uh, rare for the superhero comics, I feel like. Um, the- I just one thing I want to I want to say about Bobby before we go on. Uh, this this costume, this is the superior Iceman costume. This is like go back all all artists, all fan art or whatever. Go back to like the basics, like beginning I, uh, of Bobby's look. He's wearing these little hot pants and boots. It's perfect. <laughs> like it's just exactly what he needs. The boots are amazing. I don't think I ever noticed that Bobby has had boots back then. Yeah, uh, I don't think I have either, but it is, it's a look. In uh like in X-Men No Cone Go Go Boy. In X-Men number <laughs> one, there's this bizarre panel. He just looks naked because you can't see the shorts delineated. He's just sitting on the ground pulling his boots off. And you just it's just like he's full on naked under his icy snowy form. Uh <laughs> we gotta read him for that back then. Uh the locust the, boots. the locust runs away and we uh we see the National Guard arrive, and then we flash back to Jean Grey uh, flirting and or bantering with Ted Roberts at school. I think they're kind of cute together. Uh, Heather, were you more impressed with the second image of of Ted? I mean, he was a little less ridiculous other than how's the campus's cutest co-ed adjusting to the scent of ivy? Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um especially because I'm pretty confident in saying that Metro College is not Ivy League. Just going to throw that out there. (laughs) But in general, like, yeah, he's a cute little 60s boy who's trying to impress a cute girl. So, yeah, I did like him better in the second one. In his Uh, second but. I, I'm a I'm a clinical social worker by trade, so that's my training. So his little his little mention of uh, suppose you fill me in on problems adjusting to your unfamiliar environment. Uh, then he mentions he's a psychology minor. So there's a piece of me that's like, oh, this is what having conversations with me is like in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I would be rolling my eyes the entire time if he spoke to me like this. Like, right, if a, if right, guy, red flags. Right, right. Like, okay, so. You're trying to hit on me using your psychology minor, <laughs> not even minoring <laughs> in psychology. Um, you you called me doll. Like I I would just be scanning the room and looking for someone to come save me from this conversation. Or perhaps I have just, shoelaces I, together with telekinesis. Right, I have right. just I have just the characters to rescue, and this is why I love <laughs> subtext and why I love headcanon because I barely even noticed Ted. I was way too distracted imagining Johnny Storm and what's his name Wyatt, Wyatt Wingfoot bisexual adventures through Metro <laughs> College life. Like 
they're just on the panel. I'm like, oh yeah, number one, they're definitely banging and they're looking for a party. Like, and hey, that that fits with later, you know, canon that we have with Johnny Storm and Akiro. <laughs> uh, so for, for those that are not in the know, we uh, in, in the original Fantastic Four run, they bring in a Native American character by the name of Wyatt Wingfoot, who uh, is best known for being a long-term love interest of the She-Hulk. Uh, he's a character that's been around for decades. Uh, I actually really love him. Uh, but we see them in the background, but then the speech bubble or the, the editor's bubble tells us it's not actually them because they're supposed to be off in the Himalayas in the Fantastic Four. Uh, but we, uh, we, we love us some Wyatt Wingfoot. Uh, Dr. Gus Hopper, which we're just going to call him, uh, <laughs> we're just going to call him Grasshopper now, uh, shows up because, uh, of course, he works at this college Gene just arrived at. Well, we learn a lot. To. Well, he used to, yes. We learn about a lot about his uh, origin story. Heather, do you want to recap for us? Real um, quick, so though, just going to say a trip to the Himalayas, kind of gay. Just putting <laughs> it out gay. There. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Heather, go ahead. So, our old Gus Hopper here. Um, he was a top name in entomology, um, but he apparently had some crackpot theories that got him fired from the college, but he still lives nearby and eats occasionally at the college haunt, which makes total sense because what grown man doesn't want to go eat regularly at a place that is populated by people who are going to make fun of him constantly. Uh, he's now taking a job at Ryan Chemicals, where he's doing research kind of on his own accord, uh, and he's experimenting on bugs, uh, which in the following page on page nine, we get to see him enlarge bugs, make them fight kind of Pokemon style, like fight each other and then disintegrate them uh, afterward. Uh, do, you, do you guys like Mr. Hopper here? I mean, as a villain, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is uh unhinged behavior and it's very <laughs> compelling and i also love his disintegration gun which makes a sound like he's got a, a piss gun um it's just it's it's fun i just love that this is like for, for the time anyways right for like the 60s this was kind of like their you know critique on on big chemicals and and pesticides and you know what i mean it, it almost feels like if this was written nowadays like dr hopper would be uh doing interesting things with like uh with gmos you know like that would be kind of where he's at so it even even as like simple as he is it's kind of interesting that it's this you know this guy could have used his his intelligence for for academics and for you know the for for teaching other people uh but instead he's gone this like mad scientist route um out of necessity yeah. and he's working for the big chemical company so like that was a fun little Another thing. thing i love about this character is he has that exact kind of affectation to his speech that a lot of villains had back then which is I think I am smarter than you. I know I am smarter than you and you will see it. And it's exactly how like, like incels will talk in YouTube comments, you know, like this, this level of villainy, it, it continues. Um, yeah. It, this, this voice is so distinctive and enduring, uh, like this exact type of bad guy. Like this is how Mysterio uh, would talk back in the day too. And it's it's just so iconic. 
I feel like every like, 60s fools. villain has this. Yeah, he, he calls he calls the students prattling dolts. It's uh, the way Magneto treats Toad all the time. It's yeah. it's uh, it's just ridiculous and and wonderful. And uh, Leah, I love that uh, that comparison to uh, trolls on YouTube. That uh, that's fascinating. I have to give that some thought because it's very true. Well, it's exactly how they talk. Every supervillain back then was uh, an enormous narcissist with antisocial personality disorder. Uh, <laughs> insane. My creative genius also developed this ionic stun device to keep any rebellious insects in light. Like, it was just so great. Like, if he can't you, stop congratulating himself. If you, like, took these this dialogue and just, you know, copy-pasted it into a YouTube comments section, people mm. would take it at face value. Oh, yeah. I feel like we need to do an experiment. We'll just like uh, <laughs> we'll just take original words that uh, villains would use to insult heroes and see what happens. I love it. I also um, love that that his like special ionic device literally looks like a flashlight. Like there's not a whole lot of nuance there. It just it looks like he's pointing a flashlight at things, and it's adorable. Yeah, maybe it's a flashlight. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we uh i mean <laughs> flashlights do make things technically bigger. it is yeah <laughs> he's spreading his seed oh that's inappropriate we'll move forward uh, <laughs> we flipped the page the uh the x-men have gathered one of the dead giant grasshoppers uh at their base and they are examining it uh you know seventh grade or eighth grade biology mm -hmm. style like dissecting it uh, uh, Beast and Iceman are really wanting to go off on dates with Vera and Zelda. We don't get to see them this issue, but we do love ourselves some uh, Vera and Zelda. Uh, Leah, are you familiar with uh, with uh, Zelda Kurtzberg and Vera Cantor? I am, yeah. We love them very much. They're some of our favorites uh, in these early runs. Uh, are you fans? Are you a fan, I mean? I am, and Candy Southern. I, I think they're just so indicative of this era <laughs> and underappreciated i want someone to write a story about those three uh based in the 60s like during these times that we just get it all from their perspective i just think like a behind be, the scenes i think it would be wonderful uh, we haven't met candy yet she's going to come in in a couple of issues but we'll get there and heather you will love candy i promise oh i'm sure i i almost wore my candy southern t-shirt for this you have a candy southern t-shirt Yes, God bless uh, Cerebrocast, and the art is by the incredible Valentine Smith. And uh, yeah, little plug there. You gotta, you gotta check it out. It's beautiful. The art is just like gorgeous. Every time I feel like a nerd, I just realize there are so many other nerds out there, and it makes me so happy. <laughs> I want to candy. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. It's such a broken and fallen world, but like con connecting with other nerds sometimes is horrible, but when it's good, it's great. Uh, so as they are examining this uh, this bug, they are trying to figure out uh, who's behind all of these crazy plots. And Jean comes back. She was gone for seven pages, and they are all so happy to see her in her cute little blue dress. Uh, she is back for the weekend to help them uh, on their mission, and she tells them about Dr. Hopper and his connection to these insects. Uh, <laughs> a Cyclops, she's been here 10 minutes and hasn't even glanced my way. Was I only imagining that she once cared? Oh, it's just so exhausting. The angst. <laughs> uh, so Professor X orders the car. He's going to go to Ryan Chemicals and uh, and investigate. He orders Warren to get the car. Mm -hmm. Like he, this is 
a command. Get the car, Warren. You're driving me to Ryan Chemicals. <laughs> yeah, and, they're uh, definitely in the unpaid internship oh, yeah. part of their post-grad life at the mansion. What does Professor Xavier learn at Ryan Chemicals? Anyone willing to summarize? Uh, he basically gets granted access to Dr. Hopper's lab, even though Dr. Hopper isn't there at the moment. And he sees um, some of the research with like pesticides and uh, some of the locust eggs. And he kind of puts together these clues and it's like, okay, well, it's not definitive evidence tying him to the recent plague of locusts and grasshoppers, but it sure is suspicious. And there's an ominous map with an X drawn, so they just conveniently know where to look next. Dun, dun, yes, dun. Of course. Uh, the, the corn belt. Yes, in <laughs> the corn belt, which I kind of want a corn belt now. I'll just, uh, <laughs> it's an accessory item for my corn suit. Uh, it's like you, villains are always like attacking New York or like DC, but like Dr. Gus Hopper was, was going to take over over at the corn belt. Uh, but only like, yeah, like upstate New York. <laughs> so still <laughs> within range of New York City, which is one of the things I love most about Marvel Comics. Because DC, you know, there's like Gotham and these kind of fictionalized character uh, cities. And then Marvel is just like, you know what? Fuck New York. <laughs> um, we, uh, we see the X-Men rush to the Ohio River in their helicopter and they find Locust attacking with more... Uh, giant ass grasshoppers, uh, and now they fight Locust directly, and he's got some kind of impressive, uh, impressive tech to help him. He has uh, uh, body armor that allows him to shrug off optic blasts. He's got a gun that makes a frap sound with it's an ionic stun device. He has uh, mechanical wings. Uh, in a little while, we'll see that he can shoot out kind of silk webbing. Uh, to restrain people, and he can still grow more bugs because he has a collection of uh, little eggs that he can enlarge at any time. Uh, what did you guys think of this fight scene with the locust? I kind of love him, if I'm honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, he's fun. He is fun. He's camp. That's what he is. He is camp as fuck. And like, upon meeting the X-Men, uh, first off, immediately calls them simpletons, calls them superpowered simpletons. Like, I'm so here for it. Uh, we also get uh, we also get uh, uh, presumptuous fool in just a moment. Uh, away, Claude. He just yeah. <laughs> like like if Apocalypse was still in the business of of putting together little sets of horsemen, uh, this guy would have been an incredible pestilence. Like that would have been such a great deep pull, and he's just you know king of of all insects. I love but that back... idea so much. I think it's fantastic. Uh, the only weakness he seems to have is when he uh, Iceman makes some ice under his feet and he kind of tips over, but then he grows a giant beetle and a whole bunch of fucking wasps to go after the X-Men, and they are in over their heads. It's like, hide behind the ice shield. Uh, <laughs> he still has his fleshlight, luckily, so he's able to enlarge more wasps, but yeah, they are they are in a little bit of trouble here until he flies away. Uh, any, any comments on pages uh, 14, 15 from you guys? So many Zs. <laughs> the um, sound effects across the entire page are just enlarged, zzz, like insect noises. 
there were so many insect themed characters back then. Um, uh, uh, by the way, uh, Giant Man or Ant Man fights an enlarged insect that's sentient uh, called the Scarlet Beetle, who might be my favorite Marvel villain of all time. Uh, <laughs> he's so obscure. He's just a giant red beetle. Uh, but we have the Wasp and we have Spider-Man, all these characters, uh, Ant-Man that that's kind of theme out from here. But these are just bugs directly. It's really fun. <laughs> these are just big ass bugs. Yeah. I, I love all the sound effects. I love the choice of spelling crunch with a K instead of a C. Like, you know, 30 years later, that's how you end up strife with a Y and thorn mm -hmm. with like two N's for no reason. Um <laughs> I, I love the sound effects. I, I love one thing that was so striking to me is it feels in the art like there's this mandate that you have to get all of the characters in the scene in every panel almost. Like there are some panels that are just so cramped and it's like, you could have just had one there. I believe you that the rest of them are like in danger near him. Uh, <laughs> but no, you see like all five characters shoehorned in to like a six panel spread. It's It's kind of cool. We uh, we also see Iceman on page 15 mention, and I'll just read his speech bubble. He says, we can't fight all those at once, but don't despair, people. The, I, the Iceman cometh, as Jeannie O'Neill used to say. Now, I did not know this. I had to use Wikipedia for this. But there's an old play written back in the 1940s by a man named Eugene O'Neill called The Iceman Cometh. Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a couple portrayals of it on uh, on YouTube. It's a very tragic story about alcoholics and prostitutes with big dreams that get shattered, apparently. Uh, now I kind of want to watch it. So this is a cool literary reference. Had anyone heard of this before? Yes. Oh, why? <laughs> <laughs> theater is all I did in high school and part of college. <laughs> I love that. That makes me happy. So I'm going to go watch that later. Uh, and my kids will be bored and complain, but it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, so we see, uh, we see a very tragic panel on page 16 where the National Guard has come back and they're just fucking killing bugs right and left. The, there's a dead wasp on the ground. There's a, a grasshopper with big eyes getting roasted alive with a flamethrower that says Froom. Uh, <laughs> it's it's really quite tragic. I'm the kind of guy that if I see a spider in my house, I'll very carefully lift it on a piece of paper and carry it out to the bushes. So like, I'm, I'm a little bit heartbroken at this. Oh, yeah. This one and the examination of like the dissection of the grasshopper earlier, like this makes me squeamish. I don't enjoy it <laughs> especially when their eyes get all big like yeah. yeah and like the one yeah, the, that's getting burned alive it has this um hollow in its cheek that kind of it's tear shaped so it looks like oh. it's crying <laughs> and he's like looking right at the camera like this yeah. is not okay <laughs> like, everything is, is not okay <laughs> are you not entertained no i'm not <laughs> so okay yes, this was horrific the locust is returned to his lab so he can get some more chemicals. Now, Professor X is a man who can shoot his mind across space, who can control minds, who can erase memories. All who he had to do. All he had to do was just zap his little brain in there and and make things happen. But for some reason, he's gone home and he has put on his walking stilt tech again and disguised himself like fucking Gandalf the Great from The Hobbit. He's like dressed as a hermit with a blue hat and a cape. And it is so stupid and so unnecessary. Uh, let me hear your thoughts on Professor X in his hermit disguise. Master of disguise. <laughs> Same suit, though. He's wearing the same suit that he always wears, but he's, you know, put on uh, a bucket hat, a blue bucket hat and a beard 
and a blue cape and it's uh effective i guess because he's walking he's got a walking stick he's just it's just so stupid <laughs> i have come as a friend to save you from your own folly he says to the villain i love i love that they don't tell you right off the bat it's xavier so like as the reader you're like that's so xavier but you're kind of like you're along for the gag you're like who, who is this mysterious stranger but uh it, it's just nice that there's no exposition just saying this is xavier it uh it actually makes the big reveal that much funnier because it's like yeah charles we, we knew it was you see i, I feel it. gaslit by this that they didn't <laughs> tell me it was xavier because it looks like xavier but he's walking up to the villain and saying i'm here as a friend and i'm like well uh, who are you then <laughs> no, right? I turn back. I'm like, wait, wasn't Xavier? Hold on, wasn't Xavier just with the kids? What, who is this mysterious man? It was so fun. I feel like it'd be a bigger reveal if we saw this earlier in the issue. But we're on the last four pages, <laughs> like not a lot of room left for surprises. But when he says, "I'm here to be your friend," the locust responds, "Begone! The locust needs no friends," uh, which tells you a lot about his psychology. I think uh, <laughs> the locust tries one more last-ditched uh, attack on the X-Men. Uh, we we get some awkward fights between Beast and Angel, and then one more appearance of the flashlight with a cyst sound effect as he enlarges some giant beetles. Uh, and then uh, Jean Grey saves the day. Uh, Heather, do you want to take this part? Yes. Um, so the resourceful Marvel girl <laughs> steps up to the fore and realizes that it's his antenna on his costume that he had to be super extra about and make a full costume when he really just needed the sensors and the antenna. Um, and she's like, he's controlling them with that. And so with her mind, she ties his antennas in a knot, which apparently negates all of its ability to control the insects. And so these giant beetles go after him instead and like attack his mobile lab and oh, i love his reaction to uh gene gray fighting him he immediately calls out so in desperation the female x-man hurls herself yes. against me and female is bolded and italicized yes, but then when he's like stir my heart to mercy and it's like bruh she's not trying to she's fighting you Right. Yeah. Right. The implication there was like he just assumed that she was there to like seduce him, or like, or like be like, "Oh, I'm a poor, helpless girl. Why are you doing this to me?" So frequently, when Jean uses her powers impressively, it's to very little effect. She'll hurl a boulder. She'll slow down a ship. She'll uh, she'll lift the juggernaut into the air, but it doesn't do much. Whenever she saves the day, it's always because she like flips a cape over Lucifer's head or, you know, knocks someone's hat to cover their eyes, or in this case, ties their antennas together. Uh, but I really love the panel where she's tying them. It's like little pigtails and a little, and a little and knot. It makes me happy. And her pose there is not overtly feminine. She's like hunched over like a gremlin and staring at the locust as she telekinetically ties his antennae in a knot, which I appreciate because you know, this is during the time when all women you saw in Marvel Comics had what we call the uh, pose and point powers, yes. where they're physically impassive. Um, it's it's all kind of like psychic or 
uh, telepathic, telekinetic, that kind of thing. Or, you know, like Medusa controls her hair or. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, <laughs> it's there's very, like girl I, toys and, and boy toys and, and there's girl powers and boy powers. Duh. I love that the, the cheesecake like image in the comic is in the page right before where the locust is activating the fleshlight for the first time. And he's just got his back arch and he's <laughs> dropping it. He is on, he is scrubbing the ground. Those knees are working overtime. Uh, and like, let's just talk, like talk about peak character design. Like I love, this guy is so camp. His, his outfit, right? the reason, the reason that uh, twisting his antenna is able to confuse the giant bugs and they attack him is because his outfit is so convincing that they mistake him for what they would normally prey on. Uh, right above that too, we kind of get an awkward crotch shot of Locust kind of kicking Beast out of the air with Beast saying, it's uh, it's becoming obvious, this just isn't my day. <laughs> <laughs> you bump away, you bumbling oaf. Yeah, he's like... <sighs> If we were showing the full range of this action, he's about two panels away from teabagging Beast in the face just to give <laughs> listeners an understanding of how this panel is positioned. And we'll be posting some images. Uh, <laughs> the the uh, the Locust's lab drops into the water with a sploosh sound effect. Uh, and then pro the, the, the Locust, Professor X is clearly influencing the Locust's mind here because he's like, uh, I can't atone for all the evil that I've caused. I, I finally realize I've been ill. Let me go turn myself in. I'm going to destroy my weapons and be done with crime. Uh, so he's just wiped people's minds, but here he's just inspiring someone gently to turn himself in, which is kind of like an Emma Frost move as opposed to a Charles Xavier move. I kind of respect this as opposed to just like erasing his mind. Uh, but also, why didn't he do it earlier when instead he came in disguise and was like, you should stop. And he's like, no. And he's like, yeah, okay. This was his only chance to debut his hermit costume. Of course. <laughs> there was no other opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Let's roll with that. <laughs> and then I, and then at the I end. Love when he, he, I love when he throws his devices over the cliff. Like he's just like despondently, you know, I, I must turn myself in. And, and uh, then we get the big reveal, final panel, Professor X yanks off his beard and hat and uh, <laughs> his, his walking legs only, only appear four times. We get, them, we get them in 23, 24, 25. Those are the first three times. Uh, uh, it's, I don't know. What do you guys think of his, his hermit reveal here? But like he talked, we talked about it a few issues ago when he's like, oh, they can go outside and be in the sun and, like, walk in the sun. And he has mechanical legs. Like, why is he throwing a bitch fit if he's not going to use them? So in a couple of episodes, and this will be uh, a little bit away, I think three more episodes from now or four, we're having a couple of specialists uh, on who are going to talk about ableism. Uh, and we're going to do some reflection on Professor X specifically and how he's portrayed uh, uh, as a person in a wheelchair uh, who's a very complex character, but who uh, often has complicated relationships with his paralysis, making himself walk, thinking him of himself as a cripple. Um, uh, it's going to be some interesting uh, discussion because he's a, he's such a popular character, uh, largely related to him being in a wheelchair. It's so imposing. The 90s cartoon, that big massive hover chair he's floating around in. There's a, there's a lot of things to be said 
uh, about him. As we consider this issue, uh, tell me who your very favorite character was, uh, who's your star player today, and then did you have a single favorite panel or moment uh, from this comic book today? So the star character is obviously Dr. Hopper. I think we can all agree on that. He's definitely the MVP, camp as hell, just so fun. But I think other than that, one character that I really appreciate is actually Cyclops because he barely does anything except um, mentally pine after Gene. And it's such like a role reversal. Uh, he's very much in the background, just kind of yearning and and thinking about it. And and I appreciate that. Heather? I found that oh, sorry, insufferable. I, I found that <laughs> a little bit insufferable about uh, about Scott, but I agree with you that Dr. Hopper is by far and away the the MVP. Uh, did you have but a now favorite? you know? Oh, go ahead, Heather. I'm sorry. I, I was just gonna say now you know how us girls feel every single time. That's how a woman is right. portrayed because it is insufferable. <laughs> it's just a nice change of pace, is all. <laughs> no, I agree. Uh, did you guys have favorite, like a single favorite moment? For me, it's uh, it's that farm wife uh, wondering <laughs> if her husband's crunching in her ear. That that was my favorite laugh out loud moment. But yeah, similarly, the locust is my star player today. Yeah, my favorite panel is tied for Xavier first showing up with the hermit outfit, and then uh, I love that last reveal. That was just <laughs> the 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 anticlimactic climax of that was just too too priceless i love the panel of the locust um like squatting and using his fleshlight because the way that he's squatting and the way he's holding you know his device it's it's like um a pole dance like oh. it's so ah. look at it right the the light is perfectly vertical and he's got his hands wrapped around it and he's like squatting suggestively it is so camp i love it yes daddy <laughs> yeah. the locust understood the assignment y'all <laughs> uh as we look to uh our next issue let's just get some preliminary reactions to the cover uh we'll talk about this next time obviously x-men 25 is uh is called the power and the pendant uh, what are some of your thoughts as the X-Men get uh, ready to face El Tigre? It's uh, very similar to this issue's cover, kind of. You get the villain from the back, the X-Men kind of storming in. I was going to say, it's using the exact same cover formula as uh, the previous issue, where we see the villain kind of centered in uh, the foreground, and then in the background, we see our heroes kind of launching towards them to fight. And this looks like it's going to be racially complicated. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice yeah. no Jean on the cover this time. Marvel Girl's not there. Oh, she's um, at college. Yeah, she's off at college next issue. So uh, next issue, when they face El Tigre, we have some really fun camp and some really amazing plot lines. However, it's also very much culturally appropriated and very sensitive uh, toward uh, Hispanic, Latino people, Mexican people in particular. So we have actually, for next issue, assembled a cast of, uh, of uh, people who are more culturally uh, uh, familiar with the content. Arturo is going to be rejoining us, which I'm so happy about. And we're going to have some really fun conversations about El Tigre and his, uh, his cronies. Uh, 
I'm so excited. I like one thing I will say for for El Tigre is on the cover of 25, he steals the show with that like queer coded colors was definitely a thing and I'm just like seeing this guy in like purples and bright pinks and like already in love with him, but I'm sure he's going to be super problematic. And then he turns all gold. We'll get to that next time. It's uh it's really interesting. Uh, you guys, I had so much fun today. The, my measure for success on this podcast is how much fun I'm having, which is probably a selfish way to answer, but I'm having a blast. Uh, I hope that you had a similarly good time. Uh, as you share your final thoughts, where can people find you on social media? Uh, is there anything, uh, Arturo, with your podcast we should be looking forward to? And uh, Leah, are there is there anything you can share with us about your upcoming work or things we should be watching for? Um. We still have, I think, two issues of Trial of Magneto that uh, have yet to come out. It wraps up in December, the last issue. And I'm super excited about um, how how it all comes to a close and kind of the new way forward we're building for these characters. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at MyMonsterIsChic, C-H-I-C. On Instagram, I'm Handaxe with an E. And on TikTok, I'm X-Men Comics. Uh, I made it before I was writing X-Men comics and I refuse to surrender it because I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> uh, Arturo, how about you? Um, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Toybox. Uh, on Instagram specifically, I do a lot of like amateur photography with action figures and just nerd stuff, honestly. Uh, so Mr. Toybox. And then, uh, like I mentioned before, you can catch me uh, every week on X is for Podcast, uh, where we cover mutants, marvels, and magic. So it started off as being X-Men centric, but we, uh, we've we expanded out. And so far, we're just keeping it limited to Marvel, but who knows? And then Heather? I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Heather underscore Beth underscore. And uh, Leah, one final, just kind of quick rapid fire question. Who's your favorite X-Men of all time? Who's your favorite X-Villain of all time? And who's one character that has not been resurrected yet that needs to be? Um, can't answer the last question uh, because, well, read Trial of Magneto. Um, <laughs> and as for my favorites, uh, my standard answer is every character that I've written uh, because I get so attached to them uh, when I'm writing them and I'm in their head and they in mind that when the project finishes, I have empty nest syndrome afterwards. And there's just this kind of new place in my heart for them. Always, always, every single character. That said, um, I am particularly uh, obsessed and kind of worship at the altar of Emma Frost and Ileana Rasputina, like they're, they're my girls. Um, and my favorite X-Men villain, uh, I, Charles, I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Um, I was hoping we'd convert you to the locust, but. I mean, he's, he's kind of making a bid for it now he's like <laughs> mr sinister level camp and i'm into it oh my god you guys i, I so feel cool. like i feel like he would be a great here's the way to bring him back he's now dating one of the 
girls from horticulture one of the ladies from horticulture <laughs> and he's like he's like older but like he's younger than she is so he's kind of like her boy toy and she can't stand him because he's like just a fool but he's back i love that this... so much because it's balance right like his bugs can help you know keep the the plants from overgrowing too much that's amazing. Uh, Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Malkin PP like podcast and on Instagram. As we post these episodes, we're revealing or revealing, we're posting content from the original issues throughout the week. Uh, please feel free to message me anytime. We have the trial of Henry McCoy coming up, which uh, I am carefully preparing for and I am exhausted because he's so, <laughs> he's so frustrated uh, or frustrating. Leah, are you a Beast fan? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a complicated question and you know it <laughs> uh -huh. yeah he's uh he's a lot uh okay you guys this was a blast thank you so much uh for tuning in uh for listening uh please give us some follows uh and some likes and ask any questions you like and uh thank you arturo thank you heather and a, a, an esteemed and uh incredible thank you to uh to miss leah williams thank you thank you thank you thank you so much thank for having you. me i had a blast with you guys Okay, uh, we'll see you guys next time on uh, Grey Malkin Lane when we review the Power and Dependent issue 25.